0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast from the European Council on Foreign Relations on the ideas, policies and trends that will shape the world. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm Director of ECFR and this week we're going to be talking about Europe's unstable periphery. We just had a fascinating conference where we looked at the chaos in the Middle East after Iraq and the Arab uprisings in the eastern neighbourhood after Ukraine and Crimea. But there's also another common theme to this, which is the withdrawal of the United States, um, both from the world at large, but in particular from our part of the world. So very happy to be joined by two great um, experts on these topics. Um, First is uh, Jeremy Shapiro, who is a senior... Fellow at the Brookings Institution, who until recently was working in the State Department in the policy planning staff where he led on on Syria, but in the distant past was also a a fellow at ECFR. Um, And Niku Popescu, who is currently at the EU Institute for Security Studies, uh, but has also worked for ECFR uh, on our Wider Europe programme and um, has worked particularly on Russia, on the Eastern neighbourhood and a whole series of issues around uh, the Crimean invasion. So um, maybe we'll start with this whole question about the transatlantic relationship and the shape that it's in at the moment. As we speak, um, a crisis is brewing between Germany and the US, as the CIA station chief has been thrown out of Berlin, which is just the latest in a series of tensions that have arisen since Edward Snowden revealed that um, the NSA was listening into Angela Merkel's uh, phone calls. Jeremy, um, how serious is this uh, crisis in, in transatlantic relations? Is it just something which will titillate the newspapers and occupy some space at the moment, or is this actually a symptom of a fundamental divergence between... Europe and America, but particularly between Berlin and washington
1: yeah it's it's mostly titillation, but it uh, it I think it does have a lot of domestic political resonance in Germany, so uh, I think German leaders have to take it seriously and therefore American leaders have to take it seriously. I would say that you know this is a this is a solid relationship between um, two governments at least that very much understand that they Need each other, and that they have to work together, and that they frankly have a strong set of common values and interests to work on. Um, and there is, nonetheless, a, there is at the moment quite a lot of tension over these spying things. There's a frustration in Berlin that they're not being taken seriously. Uh, that that the that the Americans fundamentally don't believe that this is a real serious problem for the uh, for the Germans, and that they think it's just acting. And I think that's probably. The context in which we should see the CIA station chief being thrown out is to sort of say, look, we really mean it. This is a difficult message to get across in Washington because of just how normal this crisis seems to U.S. policymakers. Uh, the Germans are always complaining about something like this. This is more serious, I think. but." Uh, the problem is is that they've cried wolf many, many times. And uh, I actually developed a rule in the State Department that six months after the Germans told us that something was impossible because of their domestic politics, it would happen. It was actually a pretty good predictor of actions during the Euro crisis. Um, and, uh, and I think that that has created a certain, um, to use the German term, ennui, uh, about, um, about this type of German complaint. The Germans... This time, say that this is different. Uh, they always say that, and eventually I suppose they'll be right. It's hard to take them seriously. I think that um, the, uh, the U.S. will look upon this action as uh, not something which is intended or will fundamentally threaten the relationship, but something that is necessary for its symbolic value in domestic politics and for uh, the German government to say that it's taking this issue seriously with its, poli- with its parliament and with its population, but there won't be any major
0: response. So, Nika, you live in Paris at the moment, which used to be one of the bastions of anti-Americanism in France. But maybe, uh, anyway, how it seem from there? You, do you think that there is a, a growing rift? Because in a way, France has been going the other direction. It's becoming less anti-American in recent years.
2: Well, to some extent, I might be a bit too cynical, but I assume people spy on each other. So, in this sense, in many ways, it's not surprising. I haven't been, I haven't seen major debates or indignation in France regarding this situation. Um, yes, it happens that uh, countries spy against each other. Also, allies spy against each other. It's a way to try and get a sense of the other part, what the other partners are thinking. I haven't seen really a big wave of moral indignation in in France. Um, Anti-Americanism, but also skepticism of many of America's actions, but you also have a big wave of kind of uh, backlash against what America used to be 10 years ago in the US itself with the Obama discourse on the Bush presidency. In the sense, there's many nuances of what one might, might term anti-Americanism. So I wouldn't exaggerate a bit this dimension of French, um, of the French attitudes to America.
0: My own sense, I don't know, uh, it's, you, you're very breezy about this, Jeremy, and <laughs> uh, talk, uh, talking about your own ennui about Germany. I mean, I, I think this is really quite a fundamental uh, crisis in the transatlantic relationship, not because of NSA, but because of the end of the Cold War and the fact that our interests uh, the way that we look at the world and uh, the way that we think about the future uh, has been diverging for a long period of time and if you look at young people's attitudes to uh, in fact even older people's attitudes towards the Ukraine crisis one of the interesting things is that though the public absolutely hate Putin and everything that he stands for. They tend to be very much in favor of having a a kind of process of engagement and of not doing sanctions against Putin. And one of the reasons for that is because their main memory now is no longer about the Cold War or about the Holocaust, but it's about the Iraq War. That was a kind of fundamental um, uh, part of the the worldview of lots of Germans. And the US is seen as a kind of Uh, source of instability and of chaos Um, and uh, they don't see America as a protector or as a kind of friend anymore and and one of the reasons why NSA is blown up so much more in Germany than in other countries is both Obviously, the the history of East Germany and the Stasi makes people a bit more kind of sensitive about these issues than maybe other countries in particular. The Chancellor's own history might lend her to see things in a different way. But also the fact that, you know, Germany is basically uh, on the opposite side from the US on most issues, whether it's on global macroeconomic issues um, uh, or... Uh, on a lot of security issues, where Germany is kind of horrified by a lot of American uh, uh, responses to, to different yeah. areas.
1: Look, Mark, I mean, I uh, I I partially agree with you in the sense that I think that there are there uh, there is an evolution in transatlantic relations going on, as Germany becomes uh, a, a more mature and more normal country, and that's. That's scratchy on both sides. I don't see that as a crisis per se, and as you said, it has it doesn't have that much to do with the NSA. The NSA is a, is more of a symptom of it uh, than a cause. The question is, what does what does this evolution mean for the transatlantic relationship? I think it means that it it has to change and adapt in ways which are important. You say they're apart on many many issues. They are apart. Uh, they they do differ on issues on some issues. The governments themselves see themselves, however, as, in fact, more in agreement than not in agreement. And particularly this is the case uh, when they get into the room with the Russians or even the Chinese, Uh, at which point it becomes very easy to remember why you, uh, you prefer to deal with the Americans for all the flaws that you mentioned. Now, having said that, uh, I think that there is going to be, and con- there is, and there is going to be a lot of scratchiness in the re- in the relationship because their interests are, to an extent, uh, diverging, and there is a need, and and there is a desire in Germany, and interestingly, a similar desire in Washington for the Germans to to take a more assertive position on a lot of these issues, and that involves uh, actually having more fights, but that is a sign of maturation. That this, as long as the fights are. Uh, are limited and kept within a certain sphere. Now, the NSA perhaps threatens to get outside of that sphere, but I don't think it has yet, and I don't think it will. Uh, the point here is that uh, it was always necessary, if Germany was going to be a more assertive leader, a uh, more of a leader as the United States wanted it to be, for the relationship to be more equal, for there to be less subservience from the German side. And this is
0: this is that evolution. It's not pleasant, but it's. I don't think it's fundamentally threatening. Well, that, I mean, question about German leadership, I think leads us quite nicely into the second kind of theme, which is this whole question of, of Russia and uh, our relationship with Russia and Ukraine and the eastern dimension. And one of the fascinating things about um, the crisis is that it's brought two things out. First of all, it has uh, brought out the question of German leadership in a whole different sphere because we used to think that Germany might be the leading economic power but Britain and France would be the, the leading players on foreign policy issues but Uh, To the extent that Europe's going to have a a solution to the crisis in Ukraine, it will be led by Germany or blocked by Germany. So Germany is the kind of indispensable power in that respect. But it's also brought back the transatlantic relationship in a way because, you know, one of the throwbacks to, uh, to kind of... The past is this whole question of reassuring European allies. It's actually brought back this question about whether the US is a, is still a European power? Is it still underpinning European security? Niku, um, why don't you set that that up? Where are we at the moment on the the Russia Ukraine crisis? Where is Europe, and what role do you see for the US in in uh, in this? Well
2: for- there's many dimensions to the Ukrainian crisis. One is the Ukraine, the crisis of Ukrainian statehood. It's a state that has been managed, mismanaged for 25 years. There's a lot of corruption, oligarchy, you know, protected areas of business, insufficiently good business environment, etc., etc. And this is a dimension where the EU can help. And it seems like in Ukraine, of course, the revolution against Yanukovych was to a large extent a reaction to this uh, failure of the Ukrainian state to deliver. So there is this dimension of the Ukrainian crisis, which is in intra-Ukrainian. But also, it's fair to say that it's not the first or the last European state that finds itself in trouble. You know, we've had several Balkan states which, in many ways, were in the same situation, and this is where the EU can really help with trade, financial assistance, help for institution building, for state building, from building up customs and border guards to police reform. But a second dimension to the Ukrainian crisis is the external, is the geopolitical, it's the Russian-Ukrainian crisis. And here I think things will get much more confusing and I don't see a solution on the way out of it uh, in the foreseeable future. Ukraine occupies a central part in the Russian foreign policy and even domestic policy psyche. Uh, Ukraine these days is an internal Russian uh, uh, policy matter, is not just foreign policy. Uh, and there is a large degree of consensus in Russian society and in the Russian elites uh, that Ukraine has to be somehow uh, connected or influenced or remain part of of, uh, of the Russian sphere of influence. Uh, and this is and there are no easy fixes or easy ways out uh, from this uh, Russian-Ukrainian uh, dimension of the current crisis.
0: And um, to what extent? Um, looking forwards, is it going to just be a Russia-Ukraine crisis? I mean, you're from Moldova originally. Uh, Moldova's just signed uh, its association agreement with the EU. That's what triggered the Crimea, the annexation of Crimea. Um, originally, people were worried that um, we might see similar dynamics in Moldova with Transnistria and Gagauzia. Okay, can get you uh, tell our, our listeners how to pronounce it properly. Um, uh, and also Georgia, um, where they're you know, no stranger to wars with Russia, um, has also just signed um, its association agreement. I mean, do, do, how do you see this developing? Because on the one hand, things seem to be de-escalating a bit in, crime, in, um, in eastern Ukraine. They're not as bad as, uh, as people thought they might be beforehand. But, um, but we're still in the early days of this crisis.
2: Well, it seems like, for some reason, Russia decided that rapprochement with the EU leads almost inevitably to the risk of NATO enlargement to the east. I don't think many people in Europe really think that signing association agreement is actually an irreversible step towards NATO. But there is a kind of significant (laughs) dimension of such thinking and calculation in Russia. It might be paranoia, it might be misunderstanding, it might be just preparing for the worst-case scenario, but Russia justifies a lot of its actions uh, through this prism of opposition to to but NATO, historically there's a point to it, right? There's, well, but well, if if aren't you're only many guided countries
1: that have signed association agreements and haven't eventually, or in one way or another, joined NATO.
2: Well, but there's pl- enough EU member states which are neutral and not part of NATO of, to justify the other point of view.
0: Right? Well, Cyprus want to join NATO. Like Finland is the classic example, but the Prime Minister of Finland has just said that he wants to join NATO. Surely yes, that most n- people worried about the Finland example, which everyone's been. But, talking But about. on
2: the other hand, you have <laughs> Cyprus, which is uh, you know, in a different situation. It's firmly neutral, and it's it's a kind of pretty good political partner of Russia on many on many situations. You have Austria, which is a neutral state. Of course, you have Sweden, which is a neutral state. So I, I don't see any Sweden, automatism.
0: I don't know if Sweden uh, will give much consolation no, to the Russians either. No, that's fine. <laughs> There's
2: enough neutral EU member states which are not uh, giving trouble uh or conciliation to Russia. You also have the case of Serbia, which wants to join the European Union, has a free trade area with both the European Union and Russia, and is nonetheless on very friendly yeah. terms with Russia.
0: Yeah. Uh, you also I've yet and, to meet anyone in Moscow who would describe things as you're describing them though. which is they tend to talk more like Jeremy did about
2: yeah, yeah, but it's okay to discuss misperceptions, but there's also facts, and there's a kind of clear record of states which are neutral inside the European Union, are not joining NATO, and have very good relations with Russia. So I don't see why would you extrapolate from the case of Lithuania to Ukraine, but not from the case of Cyprus or Austria to Ukraine. Your, your and,
1: statement that there are also facts would sound better if you didn't say it in a Russian
2: accent, but, <laughs> but I take the point. With Ukraine, there was all the potential to have good relations uh, between Russia and Ukraine, even if Ukraine had a free trade area with uh, with the EU and with Russia simultaneously, as is the case of Serbia. So we really might have avoided this crisis were it not such a big obsession with perceptions, which are simply not always confirmed by facts.
0: But perceptions also create facts, don't they, Jeremy? I mean, w- w- how does it seem from Washington? Does this seem like a... You know, yeah. has the, also how's the European no, I mean, response to
1: the U.S.? Would I think, from Washington's perspective, we would completely accept Niku's analysis that there, I mean, there is no plan to encircle the Russians. Uh, Ukraine is not a prize for NATO or for the United States. I'm not sure what second prize would be at that <laughs> point. Maybe two weeks in Philadelphia. Uh, it's um, there. There it, to to a large extent, NATO expansion has been almost an accidental policy from the standpoint of Washington, far from a policy aimed at uh, at ramming things down Russia's geopolitical throats. It's been a policy that uh, is seen to a certain extent as a, as a, uh, as a burden, particularly the later stages of, of the NATO expansion and the idea that the United States is now responsible for the defense of the Baltic states, a responsibility which I hasten to add it takes very seriously, is um, is still one that one that people sometimes wonder. Maybe it was too much to take on, uh, and so there isn't a great, there isn't any deep desire to, to to take Ukraine or any of these other states into NATO. There is a important principle of the open door, which I think it holds, but uh, I think nonetheless that the Russians have a narrative uh, which we've all heard, which uh, as Niku points out. It doesn't, in in our view, precisely correspond with the facts. But I have to say, isn't completely crazy by the standards of Russian conspiracy theories, uh, because there is this creeping expansion of NATO and the EU. If they if they have a policy of non expansion, it's been remarkably unsuccessful. Uh, and uh, and I think that there is, I think, a genuine view in in Russia across the political spectrum. This is certainly from, from Vladimir Putin, but it's also from most other elements of the still existing Russian political s- spectrum that, uh, that there is this effort, and I think we have, to, we have to deal with that reality because I do think that uh, these responses, which as unacceptable as they are, do genuinely stem from uh, a very real fear, perhaps paranoia, of the European Union, NATO, and the United States.
0: And what, yeah, but, sorry, go on, Part of
2: the problem is that what Russia says it fears is made much more, much more likely to happen because of its actions. So if you look at the annexation of Crimea, it makes much more likely several things that Russia says it hates. It makes much more likely that the U.S. is recommitting to Europe and especially to Central Europe, also including in military terms. It makes much more likely a move to the center of European geopolitics from NATO. It makes much more likely the consolidation and emergence of a Ukrainian uh, nationalism, patriotism and state that is on a much more anti-Russian platform than before the annexation of Crimea. It also makes much more likely that Ukraine will be now desperately looking for military intelligence assistance from, from the West, from the US, from the EU, from Central Europe. So basically everything Russia says it fears was made much more likely by the annexation of Crimea. Uh, and then the question is whether and to what extent Russia had systematic and major flaws and failures of political analysis of what was happening in Ukraine. If you'd ask me on the 22nd of February, the day after Yanukovych left, where was Ukraine heading to, I'd probably bet my money on the idea that... Uh, the Ukrainian politics will very quickly degenerate into kind of anti-oligarchic wars, that that it would be really difficult to consolidate a firm majority in favor of reforms, anti-corruption, you know, disarming of those groups on Maidan that were using arms against the armed police and against the crackdown. But actually, and then it was not unimaginable that in two, three years, the Ukrainian political... Uh, you know, consensus would be much less enthusiastic about association, much less ent- and uh, uh, and then it would have opened new possibilities for Russia to deal with Kiev. But by annexing Crimea, Russia kind
0: of took this option off the table. So it's been a triumph of Western policy. I mean, how does the two bits conversations we had so far intersect with each other? Because on the one hand, you know, there's these problems with transatlantic relationship. On the other hand,
2: yeah. Germany's
0: been kind of leading it's been doing what you wanted it to do to an extent I suppose on on this. I mean, yeah. how do you see um
1: Look, I mean, I think that uh the the notion that Russian actions are creating a self-fulfilling prophecy of encirclement is correct. It's not the first time we've seen that in history. Um and it's 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 a disturbing vicious cycle that you can get into uh in situations like this. So the question is what do we do about it? I mean, I completely agree with your analysis, but the question now is: do we do we try to reinforce that vicious cycle, or do we try to get out of it? And um, I, you know, reassuring the Russians at this point seems almost impossible and morally bankrupt. But nonetheless, we're headed down. So We
0: should and, double down and encircle. So we will probably NATO membership for Georgia. So if I had to NATO predict, membership we, for Ukraine. We,
1: yeah, if I had to predict, we will double down um, at least in part. But I think that what that what the German position isn't an unreasonable one at this point, which is you know let's not let's not um, let's not go along with the Russians and give in to the co- to the notion of a self fulfilling prophecy. And I think that they are trying to find a calibrated position. And I frankly think the United States is willing to follow them in this in this. Uh, regard, and they're trying to find a calibrated position which both can punish Russia for its transgressions and not exclude the possibility that we can uh, um, not go down research. this rat hole of self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh,
0: so, Niku, what does a... Uh, finally, because we should end this segment and move on to the Middle East, but what does an off-ramp look like? I mean, in a way, have they not helped us by... Um, pushing Ukraine into the Western sphere of influence? Because presumably we can now actually find an accommodation between the Eurasian Union and the European Union because uh, we have won so comprehensively. So therefore we can maybe talk to them in in different terms. No,
2: I think actually everyone
0: lost, (laughs) including
2: the Russians. Uh, I think Ukraine lost. Now it's very clear that you cannot reform police and fight oligarchs when you depend on them for the unity of your state. You need this police to fight in, or the special troops and the special army and the intelligence services and the oligarchs. Kyiv needs them on board in containing the insurgency in the east, in the, in the east of Ukraine. And that you cannot reform this. So Ukraine is definitely a loser. Also for the EU and Europe and the West, of course, the EU policy in the region was based on the idea that we both need to engage and build a strong partnership with Russia and help these Partner partnership states to consolidate. Now, one leg of that policy, the idea of engaging Russia and building a sustainable relationship with Russia is also in tatters. And in this sense, I don't think anyone won. It's just this uh, very negative dynamic which hits everyone's um, interests, uh, undermines everyone's interests
0: if there is ever a place where there's negative spirals it's uh, it's south of uh, the eastern neighborhood it's it's in the Middle East and um, Iraq uh, is now right in the heart of uh, a particularly uh, disturbing viral uh, sectarian confrontation which is spiraling out of control across the the, the Middle East and is leading to uh, a real return of, of, of security uh, fears, both in uh, the US and in Europe at a time when we thought we were pulling out of that particular uh, part of the world. Um, Jeremy, how do you see the situation uh, in the wider Middle East, but particularly around Iraq at the moment? And how does that intersect with this uh, discussion about Europe's role in the transatlantic relationship?
1: Uh, the situation is bad. Uh to summarize um, i think that the uh i i, I want to take a little bit of issue with the place that you started the the entire conversation it was something you just said which is that this that the u.s is sort of withdrawing from the world and then later you said withdrawing from from the middle east i don't think that that's quite right and i think it's important for this context the u.s is definitely trying to change its role in the world and it's definitely trying to Uh, reduce its commitment, particularly to Europe, but also uh, to the Middle East, but largely to shift its balance uh, to hopefully to the Asia Pacific, but also to other areas of the Middle East. And this is a recognition that uh, given the sort of relative power balance in the world, U.S. priorities have to change and U.S. has limited resources, but it's not a withdrawal. It's it's, it's a, a
0: recalibration. It's a recalibration. Which involves it? withdrawing resources from, from specific places. It involves it involves reducing resources. And stopping uh, um the kind of a, pattern of military invasions in different places, uh, not putting people on involves, the boots on the ground, yeah, it involves, using
1: drones. It involves using force more okay. judiciously and in cleverer and more economical ways so this is this is an important change yeah it's not not
0: isolationism
1: obviously it's not not withdrawing from the world which is how you described it and i think that's a very important uh distinction but it's the
0: end of a particular way of engaging with the world
1: it's 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 adapting to some new facts in the world (laughs) i guess we're arguing over semantics but i kind of think that they're (laughs) important uh because it's Iraq and the Middle East are uh, are a good example. There was never an, an a, uh, there was never an effort to get out of that completely. There was an effort to substantially reduce the commitment, particularly in Iraq. And part and and the result of this crisis is to draw the United States somewhat back in, and more than it would like to be, given uh, the way it wants to allocate its resources in the world. So in that sense, it's a setback. To this recalibration uh, that you talked about, but there isn't really a discussion in Washington, and I don't think there could be about getting out of this business altogether. The U.S. has to respond to the Iraq crisis and is responding to the Iraq crisis in a way that it won't, that it didn't respond to the Syria crisis, for example, because so many critical interests, critical U.S. interests, are involved, particularly the counterterrorism interest. And so, I think you're going to see. Uh, a policy which is far short than a 2003 style invasion, but is actually far more than you saw in the U.S. reaction to Syria or Ukraine.
0: So, Niku, how do people look at this non-withdrawal um, in Russia and in other parts of the world? Because when I was in Riyadh a few weeks ago, they said, look what happened in Ukraine. It was obvious that was going to happen because you guys were so pathetic and limp-wristed over over Syria um, uh, nobody trusts the credibility of the West anymore, so it was a no-brainer that that uh, uh, yeah. Putin would annex Crimea as a result of that. Do you think that's uh, how things are seen in Moscow, or is that just uh, a, a severe case of Saudi projection?
1: It's special pleading from the Saudis, actually. <laughs> I,
2: haven't, I haven't seen too much optimism in Moscow in recent days, and a lot of people explain Crimea as a forced reaction to what was happening in Ukraine and actually lots of people are from the, among Villits the are pretty depressed about uh, but the, do they the think, limiting Do the, they
0: do do they think that America is basically gonna stay very involved? do, do they see America's reactions to Syria, to Iraq, as kind of signs of American weakness?
2: I think they see signs of American weakness, but in many ways I, f- I thought that there is a kind of logical flaw in the Russian way of justifying Crimea, particularly. <laughs> because if you look at Putin's speech on the annexation of Crimea, you saw a lot of invoking the US interventions in the world, from Kosovo to Iraq to, to Libya. But then, of course, the next question is whether those interventions, particularly in Iraq, did the US did lead to a stronger U.S. or not. So in in this sense, I'm afraid that the Russians kind have used the U.S. interventions as a justification, but of course... A key lesson of some of those interventions is that it didn't make the U.S. stronger and it doesn't seem to me that the annexation of Crimea is making Russia stronger in international relations.
0: Okay, sorry. Jeremy was pointing at me as if I was over-laboring the point about American withdrawal, but I think the No, no, that was a threat. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, um, I want
1: to make... I want to come back on this Russia point, not to contradict um, Niku, but to contradict the premise of your question. Uh, The... The, uh, it, it, I think it's logically incoherent to, to assert that Russia is, is constantly fearing encirclement by U.S. and the West, and at the same time say that Russia is not afraid of the United States. Uh, Russia is very clearly afraid of the United States, and it's all well and good for the Saudis to, to tell us that, uh, that nobody is afraid of the United States. But uh, the Saudis uh, have been saying that for a long time, and they have a self-interest in saying that uh, and so we need to be very careful with accepting that viewpoint it's when you look at russian actions what you see is a what what They're i see they are last
0: believers in american power in the world they are the they, strongest believers was, in american power you were going to intervene in, syria. in the world
1: they believed that we were going to intervene in syria yeah. they believed that we that we were going to uh, crush them with economic sanctions unless they uh unless they step back a little bit in Ukraine, and, and they are constantly afraid of the U.S. undermining their domestic system.
0: Um, we're running out of time on this, but I think we're going to overrun our 30 minutes um, anyway, so let's get, let's press on for a little bit. But when we were talking about the discussion earlier, um, one of the fascinating read-acrosses is this whole question of borders, um, the uh, changing of borders by military force and by other means. Um, one of the big things that's happening as a result of the iraq crisis is that the the whole viability of the formal legal borders of iraq um is very much in question now yeah. um and you were saying that the actually, you know um one of the the ways that we respond to the situation might actually might be to to deal with that reality rather than um uh trying you know killing ourselves to save sykes pico um, do, you, do you want to talk a bit more about that? Sure. That's...
1: I think this is a very difficult question. Uh, although it's slightly more difficult for Europe than it is <laughs> for the United States, um, the, the, what you hear very frequently in the in the EU re, in the European reaction to events like Iraq and Ukraine is is this sort of moral horror of the violation of the sanctity of borders. From the United States, the sanctity of borders, I think, is viewed as more of a very effective geopolitical fact. Uh, and so getting rid of uh, uh, erasing of borders is a very, is a big problem and something that the United States um, does not uh, instinctively opposes, but less for moral reasons from a, than from a sense that uh, doing so can open up a Pandora's box and it's a geopolitical problem. That means that I think, and we have frankly seen this quite a bit in the last 25 years, that there are times in which the U.S. is willing to declare this is not a precedent uh, this stands alone and borders change and we 've seen this in in Yugoslavia in uh, in Serbia with Kosovo uh, in South Sudan very recently uh, and I think it's it 's a difficult decision for the United States to come to in Iraq and i don 't think that they have but I think that the question is is an open one and it, it may well go that way because there's such frustration
0: do you want to explain what the uh, what the Changing of borders might happen. That might happen. Yeah. Is and why? I mean,
1: I, I, it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a formal yeah. changing of borders for sure. I don't think that there's anybody contemplating that. But um, I think that there's a possibility that the United States, if it fails to create the type of partner in Baghdad that it feels like it needs, uh, and frankly, there isn't a lot of optimism that it will, in, in the sense of a unity government in Baghdad that the crisis of the threat of ISIS uh, in in uh, Western and Northern Iraq will be such that the United States will have to act with a, with a... have to find a more reliable partner and have to act. And that will, I think, involve uh, creating a tighter partnership with the Kurdistan regional government and some degree of acknowledgement of their sort of de facto independence. They, at this point share a 15-kilometer border with, um, with the Baghdad government and a several hundred-kilometer border with this ISIS entity, whatever we're calling it. Uh, and they are very uninterested, I think, in in patching back together that Iraqi state.
0: So we're seeing three Iraqs emerge, a Kurdish, a Kurdish region led by Bazani which is kind of umbilically linked to Turkey, through which it has a pipeline, which is its main source of revenue, the new Caliphate, which uh, ISIS uh, is controlling, and then the Baghdad uh, regime, which is propped up by, with Iranian support uh, under Maliki.
1: Yeah, something along those lines, although I think what shape this, this ISIS thing will take, I think is radically uncertain because there's so many divisions within the Sunni camp. But yeah, I think that there, it, it, it seems under current trends that uh, that will emerge at least as a de facto reality. And I don't think that unless the United States sees serious political movement in Baghdad, which very few people expect, that they will really oppose the emergence of that sort of de facto reality.
0: So that might mean that the the responses to wrap this up is is basically the U.S. fighting terrorism from Kurdistan through the normal range of techniques that's used in Afghanistan and Pakistan, drones, special forces, other kinds of intelligence-led Things rather than going all in to prop up the, the Maliki government.
1: Right, I think that that's a possibility. I would I would emphasize that that's Plan B, uh, and Plan A is to create a a, a, a unity government in Iraq that is a, that can be an effective partner for the United States. But I think that there's a general recognition that Plan A isn't looking that great and there needs to be a Plan B.
0: And Niku, how do you think people will respond to to that kind of change of borders uh, within Europe? Is that something which we're going to feel very uncomfortable about, particularly after Ukraine?
2: I think in many ways Iraq still feels too far to be a reality that is projected in the
0: way we see Ukraine. Um, Okay. So that, that was a fascinating discussion. We went a bit far from where I originally thought the conversation was going to go, but it was really interesting. And we are about seven, well, probably ten minutes behind where we should be. But it's been very interesting. So that brings us to the kind of final segment, which is the the bookshelf um, segment. Um, I know it's been a time of great political instability and crises, so probably haven't been time to read... Huge tomes like Thomas Piketty's book on capital. But what's on your bookshelf at the moment, Jeremy? <laughs>
1: yeah, I was waiting for the movie for the Thomas Piketty book, uh, but uh, I, I guess I'm reading two books at the moment. Uh, uh, the first is is Sleepwalkers, which is a, a, a book about the origins of World War One uh, on the hundredth anniversary. I guess I find it very useful. Uh, it to uh think about the, the the spirals that they saw there there are a lot of parallels with today i think they're all of course inexact and we can overemphasize them but i guess i find a hundred years later to reflect back on the sort of still controversial causes of that really great tragedy of the 20th century as to be really useful um the second book that i'm reading which probably won't shock you are uh hillary clinton's memoirs of the state department um this book is not as, I think, revealing and uh, controversial as Bob, Gates's, uh, Bob book. Gates's memoir, so it's not as rocking a read as that, but I think I'd still recommend it because uh, I think it gives some real insight into how Hillary Clinton sees foreign policy, how she saw her time at the State Department, and just the way that she sort of organizes herself for making decisions. Uh, and the way that she sees the world and i have a sense call me crazy that this will
2: be useful insight in the future
0: (laughs) so nikki what's on your bookshelf both
2: of these books are on my bookshelves but i haven't started reading them (laughs) But from a recent trip to Moscow, I brought two books which I'm currently reading. One is just a history of Russia, written by a writer who, who writes very well. And I'm now at the in the year 1900, where there was a lot of action around Kiev, um, and that's uh, that's an interesting one, was not least pink? because. Uh, it's called just the history of the Russian state by Boris Akunin, and when you have this fascinating story of a Viking who moved from somewhere with what is today Norway to Kiev where he was a mercenary and then he moved to to Constantinople and then he somehow ended up in Sicily and then he somehow ended up back in Scandinavia and then he participated in in the Norman invasion of uh, of Britain and he died at Stamford Bridge. So I thought that that's a fascinating example of 11th century globalization where you had a mercenary who had a career in more places than most of Europeans today. And another book I'm reading, since there is so much talk today of uh, Russia's hybrid warfare capacity and this combination of uh, propaganda, economic means, and kind uh, of uh, below the radar intelligence infiltration, the things that happened in Crimea. But I bought, I bought two volumes of a multi-volume history of Russian military intelligence. I bought the volumes for the years for the 90s and 2000s and i actually the plan is to try and see how much of that history of hybrid warfare is nothing new because my sense of that this fascination about hybrid warfare today is something which uh, is not new at all and we've seen this happening in the post-soviet space for most of the last 20 years
0: wow sounds fantastic so i'm i'm um was inspired by a conversation with one of our board members, Ivan Krastev, who pointed me to a fascinating book called Thinking Through History. You might have read it by uh, um, Dick Newstadt. is that right? Yeah. Um, where he basically looks at the extent to which policymakers' perceptions of the present are shaped by their... Uh, use of uh, historical uh, analogies and there's some fascinating stories about Kennedy and Eisenhower and other people basically making big decisions because of uh, what um, uh, they happened to, the, the prisms through which they were thinking it. And Ivan actually wrote a great piece, which I also recommend on open democracy, where he was wondering how we would have reacted to the ukraine crisis if it had happened on the 100th anniversary of 1938 rather than the 100th anniversary of 1914 anyway um so that brings us to the end of this epic 42 minute long world uh, <laughs> half hour world in 30 minutes uh, podcast um, there are links to all the books that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. The editor of ECFR's podcasts is Brian O'Connell. Our producer is Dina Pardice. And from Jeremy Shapiro, Niku Popescu, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye for now.